Around the world, more than 80 women have accused Peter Nygaard of crimes ranging from rape to sex trafficking. He far exceeds Jeffrey Epstein. He far exceeds Bill Cosby. He exceeds anything that I think our world has seen so far. A pattern of predatory behavior spanning half a century. Nygaard denies it all. But now he faces criminal charges. If this were a poor man, he would have been in jail decades ago. He is hid in plain sight. Evil by Design, available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, I'm Brent Bambury. This is Day 6. Two, one, zero. A new space race to the moon and Mars. The moon is intrinsically vital. There are now four countries who have safely and softly landed on the moon. India is on the moon. The Lunar Renaissance, why everyone wants a piece of the moon. That's coming up on Day 6. Today, Iowa gets Trumpy. God wants Donald Trump to win the presidency again. Why Midwestern evangelicals are all in for Trump. What Sowetan activists go to court. Continuous intimidation, harassment. Why Amnesty says the charges against them are bogus. And the long reign of Regina George. That is the ugliest effing skirt. The meanest lines from Mean Girls and why they still sting. All today on Day 6, the Get In Loser, We're Going Shopping Edition. I don't want uh, China to get to the South Pole first with humans and then say, this is ours, stay out. That's NASA Administrator Bill Nelson kind of saying the quiet part out loud there. He's talking about the United States' effort to beat China to the South Pole of the moon. And this week, there were some setbacks. On Monday, the private space robotics firm Astrobotic Technology made the latest attempt to put a U.S.-built lunar lander on the moon. But less than 24 hours into the flight, the spacecraft suffered a critical fuel leak. That flawless liftoff, and then shortly thereafter, critical malfunction. They've now abandoned the plan to land. In the wake of the Peregrine's failure, NASA announced the postponement of its Artemis mission, which planned to put humans back on the moon for the first time since 1972. The United States is one of only four countries to have successfully completed a soft lunar landing alongside India, China, and the former Soviet Union. But the U.S. hasn't managed to repeat the success in over half a century. And now it's facing a lot of competition from other countries and private companies. Jacqueline Felcher is the managing editor of Payload Space. Hi, Jacqueline. Good morning. Welcome to Day 6. Thanks for having me. This is great. We're in the middle of a new kind of space race. What's driving the international competition to reach the moon's south pole? It's it's very interesting because kind of the first moon race during the Cold War was really about national prestige and wanting to NASA likes to say it was about flags and footprints. You wanted to plant plant the flag. Huh. This kind of renaissance on the moon is really about resources and you know building an economy. So it, it's it's quite different. The the reason that the South Pole of the Moon is the the focus of so many of these missions is that that's where scientists believe that there is water ice. Mm -hmm. So you, you might not think of the Moon as being very watery, but uh, that there is theoretically ice on the South Pole of the Moon, 
And the special thing about ice, you know, water is you have H2O, it can be split into hydrogen and oxygen. Hydrogen is rocket fuel, oxygen is obviously critical for life support. So it, it can be uh, really, really critical for long duration space travel, with the theory that the moon could be a, a jumping off point for travel to Mars, travel into deeper space. So it really is a, a strategic high ground right now that lots of different nations are trying to reach and explore and see what's there. And there's probably a sense of competition among these nations as well. Is there any benefit to getting there first, to staking a claim? Yeah, it's it's so interesting. I mean, I think it's undeniable that you want to get there first. You want mm. to be able to, as you say, to, to stake your claim and, you know, see what resources are there. But there's really no legal framework. Like you can't say this land is mine. Right. But possession is obviously nine tenths of the law. So if you start building infrastructure there, building a base, but, but right now there is no legal framework that would allow people to actually claim resources or land on a celestial body. So it, it's something that, you know, space lawyers are beginning to actually have to wrestle with in the real world instead of in theory. But yeah, I think it's going to really raise a lot of interesting questions as more countries are there, but don't really have any ownership over the land that they're on. And, and not just countries either, but private entities, because your team reported that commercially operated rockets were responsible for 65% of global launch attempts last year. What would be the advantage that a private company has over a government-funded space program like NASA? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we just this week saw a private spacecraft try to make it to the moon. And unfortunately, there was a valve issue and a propellant leak. So it, it didn't make it. Poor Peregrine Lander is just floating around very lonely, mm -hmm. not going to make it to the moon. But the, the private sector really does have a lot of advantages. You know, the, the government is bound by a budget. And right now in the U.S., as in many other places, resources are not endless. So, you know, the, the space budget is having to fight with a number of other priorities. And you also have, because of the nature of elections, obviously many nations that are trying to get to the moon are, you know, ones that have democratic elections. So you have the potential for members of government or leaders of government to come in and change course every two years or every four years. Mm -hmm. Whereas generally, companies can chase a vision a little more efficiently. And in the US, you know, between the past two administrations, we have seen a lot of continuity in space goals. So that is, you know, good for reaching some of these long term goals. But before that, there was really a lot of whiplash and back and forth as presidents did come in and kind of want to put their own mark on the, the program. Let, let's talk about the two developments from this week. You mentioned the Peregrine Lunar Lander uh, failing, having the fuel leak, but then there was also NASA's decision to delay the Artemis mission. So what does delaying Artemis mean for the U.S.'s role in this moon race? Yeah, I, I think everyone, you know, that they're kind of saying the quiet thing out loud. I don't think anyone expected Artemis 2 to actually launch at the end of this year, let alone, you know, Artemis 3 hmm. to launch in 2025. So just to clarify, 2 was going to orbit the moon and 3 was going to land, right? Put people back on the moon. Exactly. 3 is the first one that there will actually be like boots on the moon again. Right. So, you know, pushing these out 
it's obviously a disappointment to many in the space community, but the fact of the matter is that it's it's super common in programs like these. But as you know, you talk about this race to the moon, there was actually a third moon-related announcement this week. The Chinese government actually announced their uncrewed mission to collect samples from the far side of the moon. Uh, it, it's uncrewed, just a robotic mission, mm-hmm. but they're expecting that to launch in the first half of 2024. So it's, you know, it, it's it's not sending people, it's not putting boots on the moon, but it's definitely a reminder that everyone is in competition to, to do this. And, you know, China is making great strides. And NASA Administrator Bill Nelson was asked about kind of what this delay means. And he said he's confident that the U.S. will still get there first, but that there there are definitely multiple entities vying for for the moon. The the number of of misses makes me think that the Apollo program was actually way more successful than it had any right to be with all of the technology that we have at our disposal today. What makes the return to the moon such a challenge when we saw that success of over half a century ago? The the missions are quite different, right? That was that was sending a group of astronauts to the surface for a couple hours to explore and collect moon rocks and then come home. The companies and, and nations that are going now are, are are trying to, you know, set up infrastructure and build highways. And I mean, the goal is a sustainable presence. There's also the the money factor. Companies are obviously bound by budgets too, but especially looking at it from a government perspective, the NASA budget in 1965 at the height of the Apollo program was $63 billion when adjusted for inflation. Mm-hmm. Last year, NASA got $25 billion right. you know, total. And that's not just for the Artemis mission. They're doing, you know, trying to bring back samples from Mars and climate change study. There just is not the the budgetary support or sort of a national buy-in for these exploration missions in space that there was back in the Apollo program. So Artemis 3, which would have been the human landing on the moon, got pushed back. And you, you don't seem surprised by that at all. But uh, it would have been the first time that somebody walked on the moon since 1972. How soon do you think it will be before somebody walks on the moon again? Yeah, so the plan right now for Artemis 3 is 2026. I wouldn't be surprised if it slipped another year, but I I think you can confident, I mean, as confidently as you can say anything, confidently say before the end of the decade. I think, I mean, the hope is for the Artemis program to continue and not not be cut short as Apollo was because, you know, people realize that space can be dangerous and that it was, you know, I think that the government and the national public kind of wanted money allocated other ways. So I think the early missions will really be about, you know, exercising that muscle and making sure that we can do this again. Jacqueline Felcher, thank you very much for being with us. Thank you. Jacqueline Felcher is the managing editor of Payload Space, which covers the business and policy of space. Coming up, what people who stress test phones for a living think of the iPhone that got sucked out of an airplane. Initially, I was, wow, this is great. It did that. And then I'm like, well, let's think about this for a minute. It's like, no, it has a good shot of actually surviving that kind of a fall, even though it sounds like a lot, 16,000 feet. Here are some other stories we're keeping an eye on this weekend. 
I have seen the traumatized and the vulnerable be traumatized again, only to see them set up camps a block away. Police in Edmonton cleared another homeless encampment this week. The Roland Road encampment is one of eight the city has identified as high risk. The other seven have already been dismantled, despite protests, lawsuits, and court injunctions. A man was found dead at one of those encampments last Sunday. In Calgary, a recent memorial marked the deaths of 436 people who were experiencing homelessness and who died in 2023. Earlier this week, people in St. John, New Brunswick gathered for a vigil for a man who died last week in a fire at a homeless encampment there. And... This week, a group of armed, masked men took over a TV studio in Ecuador just as the signal went live to air. And that was just one of many scenes of chaos as the country descended into violence and turmoil. On Monday, President Daniel Noboa declared a state of emergency after a powerful gang leader escaped from prison. The escape triggered a series of deadly prison riots as well as armed attacks and explosions across the country. The state of emergency could last for 60 days. Among other things, it allows the armed forces to enter the country's prisons where the gangs are most powerful and are often in control. You want to do something fun? You want to go to Taco Bell? I can't go to Taco Bell. I'm on an all-carb diet. God, Karen, you are so stupid. Get in, losers. We're going to the movies. The much-anticipated new Mean Girls movie hit the big screen last night. It's a musical based on a Broadway production, which was based on the original Mean Girls movie, which was based on a novel. Shut up. Yeah, I know. It's a lot. The original Mean Girls movie came out 20 years ago, and it was totally fetch. Stop trying to make fetch happen. It's not going to happen. It was educational. Don't have sex. Because you will get pregnant and die. It helped us know what to wear. On Wednesdays, we wear pink. The quotes from the movie are now just part of our vocabulary. And for the younger generation... She doesn't even go here! It's a chance for them to get in on the iconic one-liners. Cool. I was so young when the original movie came out. But even at that, like, truly so young elementary age, I was watching it and, like, repeating these one-liners. But I would say the one-liners in this movie are, they've become so formative and iconic in the culture that they really are just almost, like, colloquial phrases that a lot of, like, my demographic says, which is a lot of the Regina George quotes, especially. Ivana Peloza ranked Mean Girls' best quotes for BuzzFeed, so we asked her for her top five. And it all starts at the beginning, as Katie is nervously walking through the cafeteria on her first day of school. And then Jason, one of the popular jock guys, asks if she, quote, wants her muffin buttered. And then it's that point right in front of Regina George that Regina George steps in and she kind of annihilates Jason. And it leads to her saying, <laughs> Do you want to have sex with him? No, thank you. Good. So it's settled. So you can go shave your back now. Bye, Jason. Yeah, there's no coming back from that one, Jason. 
That moment establishes Regina as the alpha predator, but towards the end, she's lost her place as the queen of the plastics. When those dynamics have shifted and now Regina is more on the bottom of that hierarchy and she's gained weight and she's really watching what she's eating and she turns <laughs> to Katie and she asks, is butter a carb? When I watched that when I was so young, I was like, that is a great question. I don't know if butter's a carb. <laughs> And because it's high school, Ivana's third pick also takes place in the cafeteria. In the same conversation where she tells off Jason and she introduces Katie to the plastics, the table that her and her two best friends, Karen and Gretchen Wieners, sit at every day. And Regina George, in midst of all of this like rapid fire introduction, says, you're so pretty. Thank you. So you agree? What? You think you're really pretty? That's kind of immediately in the movie where you're like, oh, this is about <laughs> these girls disorienting other girls, which is obviously the woman experience. <laughs> and I'm just going to take a second here to say that Gretchen Wieners is one of the greatest names ever for a fictional character. But moving on. This is maybe my favorite quote of the whole movie, but it is a giant monologue. But the monologue starts with, let me tell you something about Janice Ian. We were best friends in middle school. And continues know, right? on to give a major point of the plot, which is that Regina and Janice used to be friends, and then Regina flipped the entire narrative and said, I mean, right, she was a lesbian. The way she says this monologue has informed so much of how me personally, but also like Gen Y and Gen Z speak. This is how I tell a story. It is, it is directly related to the cadence and how she tells this rumor about Janice Ian being a lesbian, which is completely unsubstantiated. <laughs> and it's so funny. And last but not least. Oh, wow. We're at number five. And I guess for number five, I'm going to go with one of the most, if not the most infamous of Mean Girls when... Regina George pulls up in her top-down convertible to pick up Katie Heron after school, and she says, Get in, loser! We're going shopping! I don't think you can go anywhere in my age group, get into a car without someone saying, Get in, loser! We're going to go to class, or whatever it may be. It has just become the get in, loser, we're doing blank, is its common phrase, I, I would say. Ivana Peloza is a writer for BuzzFeed. Mean Girls, the musical, opened in theaters yesterday. That is so fetch. Still to come on day six, the U.S. election year kicks off in Iowa. What to expect from the Hawkeye State? It would be stunning if Donald Trump did not win Iowa. The U.S. National Transportation Safety Board says it's made big progress in its investigation into a passenger jet that lost a chunk of fuselage mid-flight. Last weekend, passengers on their way to Portland got the shock of their lives after a door plug came loose mid-flight, went flying into the night, and left a gaping hole in the side of the plane. Incredibly, no one was seriously hurt, but the door wasn't the only thing to get sucked out of the plane. Went to go for a walk today and found a phone belonging to an Alaska Airlines passenger sitting on the ground. That's Sean Bates. The phone he found was unlocked and still open to a checked baggage receipt for that flight to Portland. The phone survived a drop of nearly 5,000 meters and came out relatively unscathed. Now, I found that surprising, but Rich Fisco did not. Initially, I was, wow, this is 
great, it did that. And then I'm like, well, let's think about this for a minute. It's like, no, it has a good shot of actually surviving that kind of a fall, even though it sounds like a lot, 16,000 feet. Rich is the Associate Director of Electronics Testing at Consumer Reports, and one of his jobs is to stress test smartphones to determine their durability. So we ask him about his job and what he thinks of the ultimate sky-high drop test. In order to stress test phones, we have uh, four different aspects that we test. One is a simple scratch test. Another is a rain test. Then there's the dunk test. And the last thing is our tumbler test, which we tumble it in a drum that's roughly three feet long for 100 drops. Sounds like a lot, but most phones actually pass that test. My favorite part of the process is probably the tumbler test. Each turn, if you think about it, it's a, like a tube, so each turn is two drops. It's not spinning fast. It's nice, slow rate of speed that it's falling. So you hear it go bang, 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 bang as it's tumbling down to one end. And then it does it again and again for a total of 50 times. Then we stop, we check it. As long as it's not destroyed or not working at that point, it goes for another 50 spins. It's always that moment of opening it up to see what it looks like. Most of the time, they look usable. <laughs> Some of them are scratched up. You know, they're not pretty anymore, but they're still usable. I've been doing this now for eight, nine years, I would say. And we would get not insignificant number of phones that would fail years ago. Phones have come a long way in their durability. Seeing the history, you can actually see the progression of phones getting a little bit tougher. Not a lot year over year, but if you span that out over five, ten years, there's a significant improvement, you can see. When I first heard about the phone falling 16,000 feet, I was shocked, but after thinking about it, it kind of makes sense that it would pass that drop. To see the phone that actually survived that would be interesting. Not to sound self-serving, but I think our stress test is still a bigger strain on the phone than dropping it from a huge height. If it took, and I'm just going to make a number up, five minutes to fall, for four minutes and 99 seconds, nothing was happening to that phone. <laughs> it was only that sudden stop at the very end that caused something to happen to the phone. Our stress test, it's constantly tumbling and hitting and banging off of things and then flipping the other direction and falling again and again. Uh, I think it's our test is actually a much more stressful test. <laughs> Okay, hold on. <laughs> yes, given the opportunity to create a drop test from a plane at whatever height would be a lot of fun. Um, sorry, but the engineer in me is just thinking about the difficulties of making it a technically repeatable test, and those would be probably insurmountable. But... Um, 
hey, I'd go for it. <laughs> Rich Fisco is Associate Director of Electronics Testing at Consumer Reports. It doesn't matter, Lord, what our opinion is. It's really what your opinion that matters. But you've given us the privilege of being able to exercise a beautiful gift, the gift of vote. That's a pastor in Iowa thanking God for their vote ahead of the Iowa Republican caucuses. The caucuses are on Monday, and they're the first major test for the candidates vying to be the Republican presidential nominee. In Iowa, voters gather in church halls and school gyms to talk together and choose their nominees. It's a grassroots affair, making it significantly different from the primary votes held in other states. Among Iowa Republicans, Donald Trump is the leading candidate. And a big reason for that is the support of evangelical Christian voters. They make up nearly two-thirds of the voters in the Iowa caucuses. And a recent poll shows that 51% of them support Trump. That's double the support shown for Ron DeSantis. Whit Ayers is a Republican strategist and the president of the polling company North Star Opinion Research. He's also a native Iowan. And he joins us now. Whit, good morning. Welcome to Day 6. Good morning to you, Brent. Uh, some time ago, many years ago, the Iowa caucuses were a predictor of who would win the presidential nomination, but that has not been the case for the past couple of decades. Why do the Iowa caucuses still matter? Why are they important? They matter because they're first. That's the bottom line. As you mentioned, the Iowa caucuses have not been particularly predictive of the ultimate nominee in the Republican Party. In 2016, Ted Cruz won the caucuses while Trump won the nomination. In 2012, Santorum, Rick Santorum, won the caucuses while Mitt Romney won the nomination. And in 2008, Mike Huckabee won the caucuses, but um, John McCain won the nomination. Mm -hmm. So they aren't particularly predictive, but they're still important because they're first. But those three victories, especially... Huckabee and Santorum, they have ties to the evangelical community. And there are a lot of evangelical Republican caucusers in Iowa. Why are they seemingly turning out so enthusiastically this time for Donald Trump? Donald Trump has done a very good job of convincing evangelicals that he looks out for them, that he cares about them, that he carries water for them. And the proof of that is his three pro-life nominees to the U.S. Supreme Court that overturned Roe versus Wade and the right to an abortion. That has been golden for evangelicals as a huge victory that they've been trying to get for the last half century. And that cemented Donald Trump's reputation among evangelicals. There are a great many evangelicals who believe that God gave Trump to America and that God wants Donald Trump to win the presidency again. Why do you think the evangelicals believe that God gave such a flawed messenger, that he brought somebody forward, that he elevated somebody who has so many personal flaws and so many strange moral behaviors? 
they are not immune to Donald Trump's manifold personal flaws, but they will point to a number of examples in the Bible where God used flawed human beings to advance his purposes, and they believe that God is using Donald Trump to do exactly that. You're a native Iowan. Are you surprised that Iowa evangelicals have turned so enthusiastically towards this candidate? Not particularly, if you understand the mindset of a great many evangelicals. They believe that their whole approach to life is being threatened, that their role in America is being threatened, that the left is out to shut them down, and the secularists are an opponent of theirs. So they believe that they need someone to look out for them, to fight for them, and protect their way of life. And Donald Trump has become that person. In some of the polls we've seen in recent weeks, Trump has had an historically high lead over the other contenders. Given what you've seen in Iowa in the past, is there any chance for somebody else to come up and either challenge this lead or actually win? It would be a stunning upset if Donald Trump did not win Iowa. That doesn't necessarily follow for subsequent primaries, like the one in New Hampshire the next week, Mm -hmm. but it would be stunning if Donald Trump did not win Iowa. The real contest in Iowa is between Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis for second place. It really matters which one is in second, especially given the fact that Ron DeSantis has put so much time and energy into Iowa. If he can't come in in the top two, it's hard to see how he goes on much longer. What do you think happened in the DeSantis campaign? There are a host of things that happened that have caused him to lose altitude. Uh, He was actually in a number of polls, including one of ours, uh, ahead a year ago, ahead Mm -hmm. of Donald Trump. Uh, but he has been beset by a host of problems. Uh, I did his polling in the 2018 gubernatorial primary in Florida, a hard-fought victory. He will have nothing to do with the pollster, with either one of the media consultants, with the fundraiser, with the campaign manager, and with the general consultant who is now running Donald Trump's campaign. Hmm. It's highly unusual for a candidate who wins a major victory to shed every one of the people who helped him get there. And as a result, he has a team around him that's not experienced, that he hasn't trusted before. uh, And he subcontracted much of his campaign out to a super PAC that he cannot legally talk to or coordinate with. Hmm. So that's part of the problem. Another part of the problem is that he is not particularly warm and fuzzy. And in these living room to living room conversations, he does not come across as particularly empathetic or caring. And finally, he's made a whole series of real rookie mistakes from calling the war in Ukraine a mere territorial dispute to suggesting that slavery might have benefited some enslaved people, uh, to my favorite one, suggesting that the vaccine skeptic Robert F. Kennedy Jr. would be a good candidate as the head of the Center for Disease Control. Right. So the combination of all of those has meant that he has cut his support in half since he started campaigning. That is not the mark of a successful campaign. And what has Nikki Haley done in terms of her strategy 
to perhaps go after a segment of the available voters that might decide to choose her over Trump? Well, first of all, Nikki Haley is very good on her feet. She was very good in the debates. That's what first elevated her above the rest of the candidates, or at least the rest of the challengers to Donald Trump. Uh, But I think that Nikki Haley had a more accurate theory of the case than Ron DeSantis. It helps to understand the three-part division of the Republican Party in America. There is a never-Trump faction that can't believe he took over the party, Mm -hmm. but that's only 10 or 12 percent. There is an always-Trump faction in the party that is about 35 to 40 percent. And those people are going to vote for Donald Trump regardless. A majority of the party are maybe Trump voters. They're people who voted for him twice, would vote for him again over Joe Biden in a heartbeat, but are at least interested in an alternative candidate. They may be worried that Donald Trump can't win again, that he's too divisive, that maybe there's a better option out there for Republicans, an option who could serve eight years rather than four if elected. Mm -hmm. Nikki Haley has targeted those people. So she has been walking a fine line where she talks about how Donald Trump was a good president for the time, but we need to move on to a new generation. We need to have someone who's less chaotic. Mm -hmm. She has walked that line without insulting most Republican voters who voted for Donald Trump. Whit Ayers, a pleasure to have you on the program. Thank you for being with us. It's my pleasure. Whit Ayers is the president of North Star Opinion Research. Still to come on day six, meeting the global disruptions of climate change, a proposal for a multinational specialized climate response organization. A Canadian journalist infiltrates an international network of violent extremists. They don't care who they maim or hurt or kill. White supremacists who want to spark a race war and incite the collapse of society. Embrace the chaos and from its ashes, a new world shall rise to victory, white man! I'm Michelle Shepard, and I'll take you inside this movement to learn where it came from and where it's headed next. White Hot Hate. Available now on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. I'm Brent Bambury. You're listening to Day 6 from CBC Radio. We're on public radio stations across the United States, and you can listen on demand with the CBC Listen app. We're also available wherever you get your podcasts and at cbc.ca slash day6. Lower your gun! Get your gun off me! That's prominent Wet'suwet'en leader Slato, also known as Molly Wickham, being arrested in November 2021. Officers used axes and a chainsaw to break through a door before putting her in handcuffs. It was part of an RCMP raid on a group accused of blocking access to the Coastal Gas Link Pipeline. This week, Slato and two others went on trial in B.C. for criminal contempt. They are accused of disobeying a court order, prohibiting any interference with the pipeline's construction. But not everyone believes the court order was just to begin with. In December, Amnesty International released a report saying the companies behind the pipeline never got meaningful consent to build on Wet'suwet'en territory, which is unceded to this day. The report also says the heavy policing and surveillance that followed the injunction amount to human rights violations. 
Malak Gabrasalasi is one of the Amnesty International researchers behind that report. Malak, welcome to Day 6. Thank you, Brent. Happy to be here. Amnesty International has called for these charges to be dropped. Why did Amnesty decide to get involved in this dispute? Uh, it started the summer of 2022 when we hear this ongoing violation of human rights on the Wet'suwet'en territory. We sent two Amnesty colleagues to do an investigation. After spending a week and interviewing several Wet'suwet'en land defenders, the decision was we need to do a deeper investigation. They recorded and documented several violations of human rights that need further investigation. And what were were you part of those investigations? Did you personally visit this territory? I have been to the territory twice. I was there at the end of May, beginning of June 2023, among other amnesty colleagues. What was the experience like for you, Malak? What did you What did you witness? It's really sad uh, when you enter into the territory. You see these security forces with cameras taking photos and videographs throughout your travel. There is this unwelcomed, invasive surveillance that you will experience that for people who are living on the territory, you can see how disruptive it can be and violating their privacy in, in many ways. What what did members of the Wet'suwet'en First Nation tell you about the longer arc of, of, this, of this conflict, how the construction of the pipeline was affecting their community, their relationships with each other, and their relationship to the land? On initially, it's now uh, causing the destruction of their land and their water, which is one of the most important piece of their identity. Besides that, the pipeline have also brought this heavy presence of police force and security force on their territories, mm-hmm. which causes trauma, PTSD, family breakdown, financial exhaustions in many ways. That has always been a part of a strategy by industries to exhaust indigenous resistance. When the Wet'suwet'en land defenders continue to push for respect for their territories, respect for their indigenous governance, the CGL, like every other industry and development projects, went into the judicial forum and gets a court injunction. Basically, the injunction provided a broader power to security forces to encroach into the rights of this land defender. That has been like the main player into all these alleged human rights violations that we documented. So the BC Supreme Court issued this injunction and it prohibits any interference with the construction of the pipeline. Prosecutors allege this week that the defendants violated the terms of that court order. Why do you think that injunction should not be upheld. Well, to begin with, before I go into the details, there is a study by the Yellowhead Institute. The study said that 76% of the time when corporations file injunction against indigenous peoples, they get the approval from the court. The reverse, when indigenous peoples claims to get injunction against corporations, 81% of the time it gets denied. That tells you where the history of injunction really lies. But in the investigation, we identified that the injunction is too broad. The blockade was happening in a very specific areas. It's not the whole Wet'suwet'en territory. 
but the injunction covers really broader areas and makes it really difficult for the Wet'suwet'en peoples to exercise their cultural rights and also their human rights to, uh, to defend their land. Let's talk about the way the injunction has been enforced, because the RCMP has said it is upholding this court injunction in a neutral way, as it would any other. What do you say about that? Well, we, we documented instances in which the RCMP, according to Wetswater Land Defenders, is becoming as if another branch of the CGL security apparatus, the raids that happen on the Wetswater territory, the four raids. There was helicopters, snipers, dog units, all this heavily militarized police presence doesn't align well with the RCMP's claim that they are uh, neutral in some ways. Well, the, the defendants will be making the case in court that the RCMP used excessive force, that they actually broke the law when they raided Wet'suwet'en territory. Can you, can you describe some of the instances that you expect will be part of the case? Well, we, we, we identified uh, continuous intimidation, harassment, threats and acts of gender-based violence. During this large-scale police raids on the Wet'suwet'en territory, there was arbitrary arrest and physical injuries, beating, all these things have been documented. Malak, the coastal gas link pipeline is, is mostly built now. So if the court does what you're asking, if they throw out these charges, what can the Wet'suwet'en who oppose the pipeline do? What would be their next step? Well, it's, it's still, this is a, a, a broader conversation now. Even if CGL claims the pipeline is 100% complete, we still need to get the free and prior informed consent of the hereditary chiefs and the Wet'suwet'en peoples, who are the authority of the nations. They are saying, we we didn't give any consent to this pipeline to go through our territory. So the logical course of action is to go back and have meaningful conversations with the Wet'suwet'en leaders and the Wet'suwet'en people. Do you think meaningful conversations would be possible given the scale of the conflict that has passed now between those two groups and, and the way that it was resolved in, in the violent ways that you've described? Uh, well, we, we're still going through criminal trials, criminal contempt trials with the Wet'suwet'en land defenders. Amnesty has called for the criminal charges to be dropped Hopefully that will happen. If not, at least uh, like the other land defender who found not guilty, hopefully this will the same thing would happen on this ongoing trial, and that will determine what the next step is going to be. Malak Gabrasalasi, thank you very much for being with us. Thank you so much, Brett. Malak Gabrasalasi is the corporate accountability and climate justice campaigner for Amnesty International Canada. We asked the RCMP to comment on this story. In an email, a spokesperson told us the force does not have the option of refusing to enforce a court order and that its officers only take enforcement action when protests are no longer peaceful, lawful, or safe. We did not receive a comment from Coastal GasLink in time for broadcast.
It's absolutely stunning. Feels like a new ferocious phase. It feels to me like we don't understand this very well. I feel like the climate system has a lot of surprises in store for us, and I don't think they're going to be pleasant surprises. It's official. 2023 was the hottest year on record. That's not really a surprise. Climate scientists have been expecting that. What they hadn't anticipated was how much hotter. According to the European Union's Climate Change Service, 2023 was 1.48 degrees Celsius hotter than the Earth's pre-industrial average, and about a quarter of a degree hotter than the previous hottest year in 2016. That's a lot, and it puts us right on the edge of the 1.5 degree threshold. Climate scientists say staying under that threshold is crucial to avoiding or minimizing the worst effects of climate change. But even if we can manage that, the effects of climate change are already here. 2023 brought us massive fires in Canada, extreme droughts in Africa and the Middle East, unprecedented heat waves in Europe, the US and China, and record winter warmth in Australia and South America. And philosopher and writer Lorenzo Marcilli says, we need the climate change equivalent of the Red Cross, a Green Cross, in order to confront what's coming. Lorenzo Marcini, good morning. Welcome to the program. Good morning. Thank you for having me. What is it about the origin story of the Red Cross that makes you think there's a blueprint for you here? Well, it's an interesting story, especially today, as many billionaires are spending huge sums of money to escape the planet to the moon or to Mars. And the story actually originates with a 19th century Swiss billionaire who traveled to the north of Italy for quite an important business meeting. He was due to meet the French emperor, uh -huh. Napoleon III. At the time, France controlled Algeria, and uh, Jean-Henri Dunant, that's the name of the Swiss billionaire, wanted to plan some investment in Algeria. So what do you do? You meet the emperor to try and get a good deal. But uh, the meeting took place on the side of uh, possibly the main battle in the war of Italian unification in, in the 1850s. And uh, Dunant saw the spectacle of uh, 40,000 wounded and dead soldiers left on the battlefield with no medical support whatsoever. Mm -hmm. And that moment changed his life and I would say changed the institutional life of transnational organizations because he decided to forego his investment plans in Algeria Algeria, let go of the French emperor and dedicate his life to try and bring medical aid where it was most needed, uh, namely in the barbarous fields of 19th century warfare. Then he founded the Red Cross. So are you saying that you're expecting some of the philanthropic billionaires that we know today to step forward and fund the Green Cross? Well, right. I think we might as well die of climate disaster waiting for that to happen. I think <laughs> what, what the story, I think, tells us is that the spectacle of, of violence and warfare unleashed a significant response right. uh, that constructed new institutions. Mm -hmm. And today, faced with the growing reality of climate disasters, and we know that year by year they increase, perhaps we need a similarly institutional ambition to create a new organization, not for armed uh, violence, but for climate disasters and their victims, ideally without billionaires and with more politics in. Then how would the Green Cross work? What would be the, the thing that would, that would force it into action? 
Well, let me start from the end point, because there are multiple designs that one can imagine, but I think the end point needs to be simple. Okay. Wherever you are located, as a citizen of a planet that's endangered by climate destruction brought about, uh, especially by, of course, the richest countries on, on, on Earth, mm -hmm. you should have a right to high-quality intervention and rescue when you are hit by a climate disaster. Because responsibility for those climate disasters is, to say the least, shared amongst the whole of humanity. And it is utterly immoral that your postcode determines your chances of surviving flooding or a cyclone or an earthquake. So we need to get to the point where everybody has a climate disaster insurance scheme, mm -hmm. if you like. Mm -hmm. Now, the way to get there is, is multiple. Uh, there are, of course, organizations that provide relief at the moment. Uh, some of them are non-governmental. Uh, there is Christian Aid, Doctors Without Borders, the Red Cross itself. But my feeling is that this is all a little bit uncoordinated, left to individual decisions, to charitable decisions, to the limits of what non-governmental organizations can do. And rather, uh, imagine a summit of heads of states and governments coming together and saying we're now going to build up a coordination between all the rescue teams of our countries and perhaps also coordination with the existing non-governmental institutions. And this institution will guarantee the right of every citizen of planet Earth to state-of-the-art rescue in case of climate disasters. That is a guarantee that has a significance, both symbolic and material, much uh, greater than the somewhat ad hoc uh, vagaries of charitable aid. It's interesting to me that you're framing this as something that would be equally applied to rich and poor countries. Do you believe that the response to climate emergencies thus far has favored rich countries that have experienced climate disasters? Well, the quality of the aid you receive in case of a climate disaster depends on the wealth of your country. Mm. Because, of course, the United States of America can, can, can allocate a level of uh, rescue teams and aid and firemen and all that it takes to fires in California in ways that uh, an impoverished country cannot. So there is, yes, a uh, radically unequal um, expectation of life, because this is about life and death yeah. in the end, mm -hmm. depending on, on where you're based. Then uh, we know that the vast majority of uh, CO2 emissions have historically been produced by industrialized countries. We know that the impact of climate change is more impactful on developing countries than on developed countries, also because of geographical reasons, and uh, Southeast Asia and Africa being a particularly fragile part of our world. Th there is a, a dramatically unequal handling of the global response to, to the climate emergency. The, something like a Green Cross would not solve it, but it, it would be a step in the right direction, and I think a very a very powerfully symbolic step because something something would equalize their chances of survival faced with climate disasters and perhaps in this way the idea of a truly planetary uh, green cross would constitute an embryo of a planetary feeling of belonging the idea that actually we are a common humanity inhabiting a common planet that is endangered by our common madness and the CO2 emissions and extractivist uh, production that, that we seem to be addicted to. So yes, some, some sense of uh, planetary commonality, I think, would be an additional benefit of this initiative. My final question is about politics, because as you know, even among Western nations, there is significant animosity in, in some political corners to even the idea of climate change. 
how can you imagine that there would be enough global cooperation uh, to to not only create this force but to allow it to work within boundaries of countries where there is that significant kind of pushback? Yes, uh, you will have seen that recently a global agreement for corporate taxation came into force right. uh, on the 1st of January. Some countries have not yet agreed to it. Uh, the United States, notably, hasn't passed it by their Senate. But nevertheless, the majority of the world's countries have moved on with implementing a minimum global taxation on corporation, which is a way of solving the scandal of tax havens and tax evasions of the richest. I would imagine a similar model. Uh, when I say this has to be planetary, I don't think this needs to wait for the unanimity uh -huh. of all the world's uh -huh. countries. I think there is sufficient goodwill, sufficient sanity in the world today to start, even if some countries remain recalcitrant. Uh, Brazil has changed government recently, and I think they've changed stance uh, considerably on the question of climate change. Yes. Uh, I suppose what I'm suggesting is that we need to start the way that many things start in Europe, with a coalition of the willing, even if it's less than the planet. And it may so happen that those who are left out will actually be forced to join by their own citizens because not having a planetary insurance in case of climate disasters, uh, you, you would clearly only benefit. And we can trust the citizens of those countries that don't join at first to push their leaders to do so eventually. Lorenzo Marcilli, thank you very much for being with us. No, thank you so much for having me. Lorenzo Marsili is a philosopher and writer in Rome. And here it is, Riff from the Headlines, our weekly quiz. Three riffs linked by one story in the news. If you guess the story that links the riffs, you could win a day six tote bag. First, here's a recap. This is last week's clue. Stefano Lentini with It's Not Impossible, David Guetta and J.D. Davis with Winner of the Game, and the theme from Tetris, and Cecil Nagy of Esterhazy, Saskatchewan, correctly guessed the headline that we're looking for. A 13-year-old becomes the first person to beat the original version of Tetris. Congratulations, Cecil. A Day 6 tote bag will be on its way to you soon. Now, here's this week's clue. There's a mouse in the house, everybody get down, come on. There's a mouse in the house. There's a mouse in the house, everybody get down, come on. There's a mouse in the house. There's a mouse in the house, everybody get down, come on. There's a mouse in the house. Looking for the story that connects those riffs? Email us your answer. Put rift from the headlines in the subject. Send it to day6 at cbc.ca. Please include your mailing address so we can look you up on Google Earth. 
And also, so we can send you the prize if you win it. One right answer will be picked at random. The prize is a Day 6 tote bag. And you can listen to those clues again anytime at cbc.ca slash Day 6. from the headlines. And that's our show for this week. Day 6 was produced by Lori Allen, McKenna Hadley-Burke, Sarah Melton, and Pedro Sanchez. Our senior producer is Gord Westmacott, and I'm Brent Bamberg. It's two days to MLK Day, two days to the Iowa caucuses, and seven days till we meet again on Day 6. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.